Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In January 1925, a deadly outbreak of diphtheria hit Nome, in the far west of Alaska. The town's only doctor ordered a lockdown while he awaited delivery of an antitoxin serum that would stop the spread of the disease. The nearest batch was a thousand miles away in Anchorage, but a raging blizzard ruled out an airlift. Instead, Alaska's governor, Scott Bone, recruited the territory's strongest dogs to relay the life-saving medicine by sled. It took five days to get the serum to Nome, half the previous record. 150 dogs and 20 drivers took part, but radio reports focused on Balto, the lead dog in the epic final leg. The Huskies' fame soon rivaled Rin Tin Tin's, a Hollywood contract and a Central Park statue were his reward. This month, snow machines have been pulling the sleds loaded with vaccines to Alaska's remotest communities. Rural and indigenous Alaskans' access to shots are among the highest in America. Elsewhere, Distribution has been more patchy. A week in, what difference has the new presidency made? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Joe Biden get jabs out fast enough? Anthony Fauci, the country's top infectious disease doctor, says 85% of Americans need the jab for things to return to normal. What version of normal depends on how quickly the Biden administration can get the vaccine to those who need it most. It's an urgent and complex challenge that involves grappling with the fraught politics of public goods in America. In this episode, we'll hear from the people administering the vaccines, find out why vaccine skepticism is higher among racial minorities, and why the vaccine's so hard to distribute fairly. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. John, it's been a big week for you. You've had your first nonfiction book published. Yeah, my book, We See It All, came out on uh, Tuesday. It grew out of a series that I wrote for us a couple of years ago about how surveillance is changing policing, and it's really about how to think about police surveillance and, and what to do about it as citizens. It'll be out in Britain in March. And you've published a couple of novels before, but it's your first foray into nonfiction, even though nonfiction is what you do day to day for us. Yeah, yeah. It's my first nonfiction book. It feels quite different, but the sort of nerve-wracking aspect of Publication Week is still exactly the same. Charlotte, how's your week been? 
My week has been less eventful. Um, like many American parents, I came to the sickening realization that while I thought my son was in social studies online, he was in fact trading GameStop. But <laughs> otherwise, good. Stonks. <laughs> Only a six-year-old could come up with stonks as the term for stocks. So I feel like that was the dead giveaway. I hope he's made your family a fortune in the process. <laughs> Well, it's been a big week for me as well, because at the risk of oversharing, I had my COVID vaccine this morning, which was very exciting, uh, for reasons that are too tedious and, and revolting to go into. I'm in a somewhat medically vulnerable category, and so I uh, got my COVID shot sooner than most other friends my age, and no ill effects thus far, so that's good. And when do you get the next one? I think in 12 weeks' time. I asked that. The nurse was super helpful. The whole process worked pretty well. Uh, they were somewhat vague on when the follow-up shot is. But yeah, it was the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I think I get it in about 12 weeks' time. Wonderful. I hope that means we'll get to see you here before too long, that you'll be safe to travel again. Yeah, I hope so too. Apparently, I'm about 70% protected now. So make of that what you will. But I, I can't wait to come and hang out with you guys appropriate distance and masked up and, and all that kind of stuff. The only person whose vaccination really counts is John Fasman because we're all waiting for him to cook for us. I can't wait. So though, while I'm thrilled for that you've had your vaccine and that you now are less vulnerable, I'm still counting down the days for Fasman's vaccination. It's true. Fasman has been promising to cook for us for about a year now, and we're looking forward to this greatly. But Those, uh... those have been cost-free promises, but I will keep them once I'm vaccinated. <laughs> Promises made, not promises kept. Right. Well, as we're on the subject of promises, Joe Biden has promised to deliver 100 million vaccines in his first 100 days. Vaccination rates vary greatly in different parts of the US so far. Martin Stallone is the CEO of Cayuga Medical Center, which is a large healthcare system in upstate New York. It's distributed vaccines quickly by taking over disused department stores. Early in the pandemic, we were uh, fortunate to get access to the old Sears and the old Bonton stores, which combined are about 100,000 square feet, uh, fairly empty former retail spaces. And we've converted about 40,000 square feet of the old Sears building to our vaccine line. We can flow 200 or more individuals per hour through that facility and we, of course, have the ability to go into extra space that we're not using or into the Bonton space and go even higher. We hope that we're pressured to do that at some point by uh, more vaccine delivery. So Cayuga's unusual in that thus far, unlike some other health systems, you've managed to use 100% of the vaccines allocated to you. What is the secret to vaccinating people quickly and efficiently? How do you get it right? Two reasons that I can uh, speak to. Uh, operationally, we are accustomed to mass distribution operations. We've just surpassed about a million tests performed, COVID tests performed. So we had experience with large-scale operations. But we also have formidable patient tracking abilities and the ability to stand up software products, web-based software products. So we're able to coordinate large numbers of individuals. There's also uh, inroads into our community. So unlike uh, some other institutions, we've got relationships with all of the private practices, all of the community-based organizations. So when it came time to reaching individuals within uh, a particular category, we were able to turn on those communication pathways. And so we had our community 
organizations, our partners pulling for us. Can I just go to this question of guidance, which is proving problematic when it comes to the implementation of the vaccine? Is the problem that it's super specific and that if you deviate from the rules slightly, then you get in trouble? Or, Or what's the problem there with the guidance? At the state level, there are categories of individuals who are eligible. And within those categories, uh, there is not exactly clear guidance. Hospitals need to figure it out for themselves. Public health departments need to figure it out for themselves, how to stratify within that. And it gets confusing. So uh, we're told, for instance, that you need to reach uh, the developmentally disabled populations that reside in facilities, which is very specific. And then at the same time, uh, everyone who's 65 and older is eligible. And so at the at the end of the day, you come into uh, millions of people being eligible, but a very limited supply and an online market that allows only a fraction of the individuals who are eligible to get there. But there's specificity and restrictions, and you should be turning people away if they don't meet the right criteria. Uh, so that becomes very confusing. And then you have to layer in. There has been Uh, an environment in which hospitals and other entities charged with distributing the vaccine are actually threatened that if they don't get it right, there's fines. And you you sign attestations as a hospital leader that you're uh, accountable to public health law if you, by mistake, give it to the wrong persons. That's really interesting. So there's a trade-off between prioritizing the people that the state authorities want to prioritize and, and speed when it comes to getting the vaccine out. Speed versus accuracy are counter forces in this. And if you get it wrong, there doesn't seem to be forgiveness. After three weeks, we actually had used up most of our vaccinations. Seiji Hayashi is medical director of Mary's Center, which is a community health center in Washington, DC. It serves mostly Hispanic and African immigrant populations in the city. It's a very different setup from Cayuga, but the supply problems are the same. We had been working with the public health department to get more, but they were out. So the flow to the states um, and the District of Columbia had slowed down. We've been calling the uh, district to figure out, you know, can we, how many more can we get? When can we get it? You know, we have patients who are waiting. We have staff that are waiting. At first, we were ramping up. Now we're, you know, uh, waiting to figure out, you know, when can we get more vaccines? Dr. Hayashi says vaccine hesitancy is a problem among his patients. The trust issue has been one of the major barriers and obstacles for us. Patients are refusing vaccines. We have been hearing from the community fears about, you know, the vaccine, that it was going to alter their genetics, that, you know, they were going to get COVID, uh, there was going to be birth defects. Those are the three uh, big fears that I've heard from our community. That fear actually is something that we hear among our staff as well. Many of our frontline staff are actually members of the community that we serve. Their families are asking our staff not to get vaccinated. But he does think the new administration has made a difference in one important way. Now the message has been very clear. We're in this pandemic. Everybody should be wearing a mask. Everybody should be uh, socially distancing and washing their hands. We don't hear the counter to that now. In terms of the vaccinations, we are hearing 
the truth now and that the federal government basically said they don't know how many vaccines they have. They're being honest and, and transparent about it. And that has been helpful. Even within our staff, we have had people initially decline the vaccine. We have 700 staff. Over 150 have initially declined. And as I go through my master list of the 700 people, I see that people who had initially declined the vaccine are now getting the vaccine. And so I know that we're getting through to our staff, we're getting through to the community. The messaging really matters. The transparency matters. We can feel it. We can see it and how that's translating to community behavior. So, Charlotte, two views from quite different places and quite different situations, both people trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. For them, what happens at a city and state level is really important. But how important in all this is the federal government? How much of a difference does it make having Joe Biden in the White House as opposed to Donald Trump when it comes to getting Americans vaccinated? I think the truth is that we'll have to wait and see. Clearly, the Biden administration is willing to accept more responsibility for responding to the pandemic than Donald Trump was. They do want the federal government to play a big role. And Joe Biden put out this 200-page plan on January 21st that had a variety of different strategies in it. The ones that really popped out to me included um, more federal support for testing sites, an attempt at more data sharing so that we can track different rates of infection in a transparent way, as well as um, rates of vaccination, and then ways to obviously get more people vaccines. And so they're rather than holding back um, some doses, they're going to try to to release doses to states more quickly and also give states and cities more regular forecasts for how many doses they'll receive. Because this is really something you've heard. I've heard anecdotally from from friends who are trying to get their parents vaccinated, and you've seen certainly different reports across the country that states and cities are trying to prepare for a certain amount of vaccines on a certain day. They're trying to make appointments. They're trying to get people ready to receive these vaccines, but then the vaccines don't materialize. It's just a very, very difficult planning process. And so I think the degree to which the Biden administration can give a bit more certainty to states and cities, that will be a big help. Um, And then there was this big news this week on Tuesday that the Biden administration said it would increase its number of vaccine purchases dramatically from 400 million to 600 million by the end of the summer, buying 100 million more from Moderna, 100 million more doses from Pfizer. And if that materializes, that would be a really big deal. I mean, that's a lot of people who can get vaccinated. So I think that the administration is pretty candid, actually, about acknowledging that it's not, you know, this is not a sure thing. But that's what they're trying to do. And it's helpful to know that. And John, how is America doing at the moment compared with other rich countries when it comes to the vaccine rollout? It's actually not doing terrible, even given all the chaos and rolling out the vaccines, given the shortages. As Charlotte has said, I've I've heard and experienced that too. People just don't know where to get vaccines often. But even with all the chaos, the U.S. is not doing that badly. It's given shots, at least one shot to 6.8% of its population. The most vaccinated EU member state is Malta at just 4.5%. Britain is at 11%, which is impressive. And and the most vaccinated rich country is Israel, which is at 44% of its population. And you're already starting to see the effects in Israel 
they concentrated on the elderly first and deaths are down, hospitalizations are down. So I think we'll start seeing the effects in the in the US fairly soon, even with all the sort of chaos of rolling out, which was partly inevitable, right? The United States is not a strong federal state. The responsibility for vaccinating people was always going to be a local responsibility. But Charlotte is right that the federal government is helping by providing more information, by collecting more data, and by taking things more seriously than the Trump administration did. I think a really important metric, if people want to geek out, is the CDC has this dashboard that shows on a national level and on a state level, both how many doses have been distributed and then how many have been administered. So when I checked last night, it was 47.2 million doses were distributed and 24.7 million administered. So, you know, a little more than half of those doses that were distributed had actually made it into patients. And the states that have done pretty well are are kind of an interesting group. West Virginia, Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Connecticut stand out as doing pretty well. And we can get into more why that is. But you do see there in those numbers this, this tension, which is that everyone wants to have the vaccine distributed to them, but then there is this additional challenge of administering them. And that's what was really interesting about hearing from Martin Stallone is that, you know, when you get down to it, it involves all these kind of creative decisions for how you're going to get vaccines to individuals and what that looks like in Cuyahoga is going to be pretty different from how it looks in New York City or how it looks in Houston, Texas. So beneath that CDC dashboard, there's just a whole amount of work and hugely diverse response for trying to get those vaccines to patients. It's also slightly hard to judge who's doing well and who's doing badly in one sense, because if a state is not using its full allocation, or if a medical system is not using up its full allocations of vaccine, then that's a bad failure of logistics. And they deserve criticism for that. If, on the other hand, a state or a medical system is using up all of their vaccine supply, then that's a problem of supply. We can't make the vaccine fast enough. But I think that problem of supply is is the one that you want to have, yeah. if, if you like, because that means that as fast as the vaccine can be made, it's getting into people's arms. Uh, and so I think you know those numbers that you pulled up, Charlotte, from the CDC are the right ones to be looking at. I think that's absolutely right. And that's why Dr. Stallone's comment about the fines that he can incur from giving the vaccine to someone not on the list represents such a failure of policy from Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. The vaccines have to be kept cold, and once you prep them, they have to be used. So the idea that you should throw them away instead of giving them to whoever happens to be around and might want them just makes no sense to me. Well, there's clearly that logistics challenge of trying to get the vaccine into as many arms as possible, as fast and as efficient as possible, whilst also prioritizing the right people. And then there's a separate related problem, which is about confidence, trust in the vaccine and the medical authorities dispensing the vaccine. That could also prove a big impediment to getting a smooth vaccine rollout in America. We'll talk about the importance of trust in the vaccine in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, you might want to. It's really easy. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. In this week's issue, you can read our assessment of Joe Biden's Buy America plan about vaccine nationalism in Europe and pickleball. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Thank you. Thank you. 
On the 16th of May 1997, five elderly farmers from Alabama were President Bill Clinton's guests of honor. Thank you very, very much for inviting us to the White House. Taking the podium in the East Room, 95-year-old Herman Shaw spoke on their behalf. We are delighted today to close this very tragic and painful chapter in our lives. We were treated unfairly, to some extent, like guinea pigs. Herman Shaw's story goes back to 1932, when notices appeared around the cotton fields of Macon County advertising free medical care. Hundreds of mostly poor African-American men signed up in exchange for meals, medical checkups, and, more ominously, burial insurance. They were never told the real purpose of the study, research into syphilis. Two-thirds of the 600 men in the government-run trial had the disease. Those with the most serious cases would go blind and insane. But doctors withheld treatment. They stuck to observing their subjects through the study's endpoint, autopsy. The experiment continued even once penicillin became the standard treatment for syphilis in the 1940s. It only ended in 1972 when a US Public Health Service insider leaked it to the press 40 years after the study began. I'm saddened today to think of those who did not survive and whose families will forever live with the knowledge that their death and suffering was preventable. In all, 28 of the men from Macon County died from syphilis. A hundred more perished from related complications. He speaks to our faith in government and the ability of medical science to serve as a force for good. The scandal sparked congressional hearings, multi-million dollar settlement, and new guidelines to protect human subjects in government research. Ladies and gentlemen, and finally, I give you the president of the United States of America. In 1997, an apology. What the United States government did was shameful, and I am sorry. Bill Clinton's words were hugely symbolic for race relations. They moved the victims and their families to tears. To our African-American citizens, I am sorry that your federal government orchestrated a study so clearly racist. The president announced a new National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University, which had housed the study. So let us resolve to hold forever in our hearts and minds the memory of a time not long ago in Macon County, Alabama, so that we can always see how adrift we can become. But in spite of Clinton's lip-chewing bid to bring closure, the Tuskegee experiment's notoriety and the mystery over how it was allowed to carry on for so long still fuels distrust of public health authorities in black America. We cannot be one America when a whole segment of our nation has no trust in America. An apology is the first step, and we take it with a commitment to rebuild that broken trust.
John, that Tuskegee example is such a horrifying one, and it really beggars belief that the study continued until 1972. I guess until you recall that this was happening in Alabama in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and early 70s. How direct a line is there between mistrust of the medical system and mistrust of the vaccine among African Americans in particular, and episodes like that? I think it's part of a long history of unequal treatment in medical system. There was just an article you may remember at the end of 2020 about an African-American doctor named Susan Moore who was hospitalized with COVID and was in pain and the doctors wouldn't give her narcotics and ended up discharging and she ended up dying a few days later. Dr. Moore said she ended up posting videos to Facebook to try to raise awareness. She said she didn't think that would have happened if she was white and I think that's probably plausible. So. The Tuskegee study is is uniquely horrific, um, but it is part of a long history of unequal racial treatment by doctors, by the medical system. And I think that's not something that anyone would get over overnight. To the question of trust as well, specifically when it comes to the current vaccination campaign, of course, you can't forget about the long history of eugenics in the country with tens of thousands of forced sterilizations. Um, So it's a very rich and troublesome record within American health. And so when one thinks about the disproportionate impact on communities of color from COVID to date, you know, the hospitalization rate right now is the worst for Uh, the Hispanic and Latino population at four times the rate for white Americans. Um, Among Black and Hispanic populations, the death rates are almost triple that of the white population. So clearly communities of color have been so devastated by this pandemic. But then when you look at some of the data on vaccinations, 71% of Black Americans know someone who's been hospitalized or died of COVID, according to research from the Pew Center, but only 42% say they would get a vaccine if it were available today. That's much lower than white and Hispanic adults. But I think when we talk about the very present issue of trust in these communities, it's hugely important to remember just how devastating the health record is. But as Charlotte, as you say, you know, looking at those vaccine skepticism numbers, they look really worrying. And you might conclude from them that America's going to have a really, really hard time getting everybody vaccinated. But they do seem to be a bit softer. I mean, people trust their neighbours, they trust their friends, they trust their family. And the surveys, at least that I've looked at so far, suggest that once African Americans, like everyone else, know people who've been vaccinated um, and and you know, can see for themselves that the vaccine is safe, their propensity to get the jab themselves suddenly shoots right up. And then those racial disparities in vaccination skepticism melt away. But assuming vaccine skepticism does melt away, there's still the question of how to ensure that the vaccines are distributed equitably, right? And I think that's one reason why part of Biden's sort of initial push on COVID was to convene an equity task force. So if you're going to give out the shot through pharmacies, for instance, you need to be aware of which neighborhoods don't have pharmacies. What do you do about that? So how do you ensure once the messaging is on point that the actual delivery of the vaccines is also done in a way that doesn't exacerbate existing racial disparities in the in the healthcare system? Yes, absolutely. We have a great piece this week in the paper that looks at this, and it makes clear that the real problem really is access, not trust and hesitancy. And you heard in the interviews 
earlier in the podcast that both are an issue and both are worthy of attention, but ultimately it does come down to access. And I think that's what you see in the disparate hospitalization and death rates among white African-American and Latino populations, that the one reason that the disparity exists is pre-existing access to healthcare, pre-existing access to healthy foods, that sort of thing. Okay, thank you both. We'll pick up on that point about access to the vaccine when we're back in just a moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Joe Biden continued his spree of executive orders this week. There were four specifically focused on racial equity. Tamara Jilts-Bohr is The Economist's US policy correspondent, and her piece in this week's issue argues that access is a bigger problem than hesitancy in ensuring the equitable distribution of COVID vaccines. It's reasonable to assume that as more people actually get the vaccine, we're going to actually see that hesitancy overall will decrease. So, for example, a survey by the Association for a Better New York showed that white residents are more likely to get the vaccine in New York as soon as possible. So 78% of white people versus 39% of black residents and 54% of Asian and Hispanic residents. However, once a few or many other people they knew had already taken it, this desire to take the vaccine actually increased by 26 percentage points for Asian people, 29 percentage points among Hispanic people, and 34 percentage points among Black people. And this is really important for, for a bunch of reasons, not least of which is that African Americans and Hispanic Americans have been two or three times more likely to die of COVID-19 than white Americans. What's the picture been like so far when it comes to access, when it comes to African-Americans, Hispanics being able to get hold of this vaccine, which, of course, we're at the early stage here. You know, it's very scarce. A relatively small share of Americans have been been vaccinated. But, but even given that, what's the picture like on access? We're seeing signs that people of color are not getting equal access to the vaccine. So, for example, in Suffolk County, a county that includes Boston, 46 percent of white residents live in a census tract within one mile of a vaccination site. And that's compared to only 26% of Hispanic residents and 14% of Black residents. Another example is that in Memphis, Tennessee, we saw that all 10,800 vaccine appointments were claimed before those without internet access could even sign up by phone. And we know that Black and Hispanic Americans are less likely to have internet access than white Americans. So overall, we're seeing signs that there could be unequal access. And one of the things you've written about in the piece in this week's Economist, which which you wrote, is that there may actually be some legal challenges to attempts to prioritise vaccine access for African Americans and, and Hispanic Americans. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Sure. Um, so some areas have taken race into account and it seems like it will be successful. So, for example, DC Health has created additional appointments for people living in 
certain areas of the city that are predominantly minority. The Journal of the American Medical Association has actually said that it's likely that we could see some legal challenges if we have race-based policies, um, and they recommend trying other proxies um, in order to ensure that these race-focused uh, strategies are actually legal. Charlotte, this question about access to the vaccine just seems like a really hard one to solve when you're looking at it from a race point of view, because in a sense, it's the oldest story in American history, or at least in recent American history. If you set out to make access to the vaccine race neutral, then what tends to happen is the vaccination centres get located in the areas where it's easiest to put them. And that ends up being the white areas of town and therefore becomes easier for white Americans to get vaccinated than for African-Americans, say. I mean, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but you get the point. On the other hand, if you deliberately set about to say, okay, we're going to prioritise African-Americans, we're going to vaccinate them first, you'd get an enormous political backlash in America. And also there would probably be legal challenges to that. So this is this is a really hard one. It is hard, but it's not that hard, I don't think. I mean, if you look at New York, for example, where I am, there's a huge vaccination center that got set up at the Javits Center. And those who have been blessed enough not to visit the Javits Center, I'm envious of you, but it's on the west side of Manhattan. It's like a dismal big convention center. You know, there aren't that many people around. It's near the new Hudson Yards development, which people may know for having lots of fancy shops and so forth. Um, there was talk of having a big vaccination center instead at City Field, which is where my beloved Mets play, or up at in Yankee Stadium, where that other lesser team plays. And you could have just had them there instead. Queens had a huge, huge number of people who suffered from COVID. It's an obvious place to set up a big mass vaccination center. So why do it at the Javits Center instead of City Field? You know, if you had to choose one, I would have gone with City Field. So um, that's one example of a case in which that's not saying you know, we're trying explicitly to reach Black Americans because we're so piously concerned about race relations. It's a practical decision and one that would have probably had a better impact on the total course of vaccinations within New York City broadly. I think Charlotte is right. It's a thorny problem, but I don't think it's that difficult to solve. It's just a policy design question, right? A state just has to say, we are setting up vaccination centers in underserved areas. And those underserved areas, you know, in Texas, for instance, are going to include parts of Houston and Dallas that are majority non-white, but they're probably also going to include a lot of rural areas where white people are underserved. I think that's one reason that West Virginia has done so well in vaccinating its population is that it focused on getting vaccines to where people are who need them and not just setting them up where it's easiest to set them up. So I think a little bit of sort of conscientiousness and, and deliberativeness in the design of policy, it won't solve this problem, but it'll help ameliorate it. I think I disagree with both of you on this. I think you're suggesting that this is easy. And I think it's not for the reasons that we heard earlier from our interviews, particularly the guy who's running Cayuga Medical Center. There's a trade-off here between speed and who you prioritize. And if you are prioritizing speed, then you probably set up your vaccine center at the easiest place to set it up closest to the biggest concentration of trained staff, etc. And that leads you to the Javits Center rather than Queens. Now, 
I think setting it up in Queens would make a ton of sense for all the reasons that you mention. But unless you're prepared to explicitly say, right, we're going to concentrate on African-Americans, on Hispanics, on low-income populations, and the rest of you can wait, that's the outcome you end up with. And uh, your rollout will be slower as a result. And also, to your point about Texas, John Fassman, I mean, in Dallas, there was a huge political backlash when the city government there said that it was going to prioritize low-income, non-white communities. In fact, I believe the state government said that um, the city's allocation of COVID vaccines would might be reduced as a result of that. Um, so I don't think this is straightforward at all. And, and I think you have to believe that neither Bill de Blasio nor Andrew Cuomo kind of care about the racial politics of this. Um, and they haven't you know, thought about it in their policy design. That just seems really unlikely to me. This is so fun. We always agree on everything. And I am now going to argue with you a little more. So just to, to dwell on the New York example, I do agree with you that I think that the idea of really micromanaging this distribution of vaccines is a mistake because then you're going to get and placing harsh restrictions on who can get it is a mistake because then you're going to get a lot of wasted doses. And that's clearly not what we want. If you overlay the distribution of this with very, very strict bureaucratic rules, it's a nightmare and wasteful. So I don't think you should say only, well, first of all, it would be illegal to say this, but only a person of color can receive this vaccine. That's why you've seen some relaxing of the rules for the people eligible for vaccination, because, you know, when they started with just the over 75 rule, there were too many vaccines that were being wasted, and you have to over schedule, you have to overbook um, the number of vaccine appointments so that you always have someone there to receive the vaccine. So I think we agree on that. On the question of where you set up these centers, I'm sure there was some rationale for going to the Javits Center. But if you look at the people who staff hospitals, who are the people who are nurses, who are the people who are going to be distributing the vaccine? I would bet a lot that they're not living near the Javits Center. And you know where they are living? They're living in Queens. I mean, if you look around at where health staff is actually populated, they're all over the city and they're not necessarily in Manhattan. So I think that, um, you know, it's not straightforward. And, and there are politics about, about this that become difficult and there are legal questions that become difficult. I agree with you on that, but I just don't think that it then is impossible to do this in a way um, that sort of is actually more effective medically because you're getting vaccines to the population that most needs it. And I think that the discussion we're having underlines a real challenge broadly for the Biden administration, not just with COVID, but generally as a form of government, because they've elevated racial equity as a thing, and they want it to pervade what they do as an administration. And you've seen conservative commenters already say, you know, this is extreme. He talks about unifying America, but now he's so focused on racial equity that will divide the country and so forth. And I think the challenge for the Biden administration is to do, as, as John has said in the past, to focus on ways in which to deliberately ensure that policy is equitable. And that requires deliberate thought. It requires planning. It requires thinking about um, programs in a way that you didn't before. It doesn't mean excluding white people from the benefits of government, but it means including people of color intentionally. And I think that that's a real challenge. That balance is a real challenge for the Biden administration, both with the distribution of vaccines, but also more broadly. John, this feels like a microcosm, albeit a really big, important microcosm of something that Joe Biden's administration is going to bump up against again and again in its racial equity agenda, which I think all of us support, which is that 
very often when universal public goods are distributed in America, African-Americans uh, in particular tend to be at the back of the line. And yet, both politically and legally, attempts to put the thumb on the scale and adjust for that and put African-Americans first run into political problems because you get a backlash from other groups in America uh, and often run into legal problems as well. Yeah, this is not a new problem. I think the challenge for the Biden administration in pursuing its racial equity goals, which which are all to the good, will be explaining to America generally, often and over again, why this benefits everybody so that it doesn't seem like a sort of political sop, but it seems like what it is, which is an attempt to approve the country generally. But they're going to have to get used to explaining why they're doing what they're doing and probably saying the same thing over and over again for the next four years. Yes, and I expect that's something we'll come back to again on future podcasts. In the meantime, though, before I let you go, I have a quiz. The Economist's earliest report on vaccinations came in 1852. Smallpox was ravaging Jamaica. The paper was alarmed that, quote, the disease spread into the abodes of the respectable classes. The colonial government at the time was offering vaccinations for free, but take-up was slow. Which city saw America's first mass inoculation program after a smallpox outbreak in 1721? Philadelphia? That sounds reasonable. I'll say New London for no, no reason in particular. Because it'd be so good if that was right. But it was, in fact, Boston. Boston's was the first major vaccination program in the Western world, and it was hugely controversial. In which country was inoculation invented? France? China. It was China. John Fassman, you get more than one point, so I good. think, for knowing that. Just, That's most impressive. Yeah. References to inoculation in China go back to the 10th century. They blew dried smallpox scabs up nostrils at the time. That was the technique. Yeah. Variolation, as the practice is known, later spread to Africa, India, and the Ottoman Empire. African slaves brought it to America. The famous New England Puritan Cotton Mather learned about it from his slave Onesimus. Of course, it was Mather, not Onesimus, who became a fellow of London's Royal Society in recognition of his contribution to science. The reason I remember that China thing was because variolation is such a disgusting sounding process that I just have never been able to forget it. It does sound really horrible, doesn't it? It's yeah. everything you tell your child not to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got, speaking of quizzes, I got some feedback from the Oregon Trail reference last week and that it's not usually typhoid that people died from. It was usually dysentery, according to the game. I don't think that's historically accurate necessarily. I think most people are probably dying from cholera, but anyway... There are lots of people out there who also played Oregon Trail, and apparently people's children are still playing it now, which is... My sons both play it, yeah. So how does that work? Do you have some kind of Apple 2GS hidden in your house, or you can play it on a browser? No, I think they play it through a browser. For some reason, the narrative structure of Oregon Trail, they just love. <laughs> I did have to explain to them what dysentery was, though. That was not fun. Okay, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Congratulations on the book again. Thanks, John. Yes, so excited to read it. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. Thanks to our keen-eared correspondent who spotted an error in last week's podcast. The house George Washington occupied as president was, of course, in Philadelphia. He commissioned the White House but didn't live in it. Please do keep writing in and keeping us on our toes. 
In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.